0: Good morning, I want to invite you to turn with me to Romans 11, as Greg said, specifically we're going to be in verses 25 through 36. Are you ever haunted by regret, perhaps over decisions you made in the past, things that you have said or done? Regret is one of those haunting things, right? Some of those memories may stick with you and you might be plagued by thoughts like if if I could just go back and do that over again, if I could do it differently I would. Or perhaps you harbor some resentment towards someone else who has wronged you in the past. Regret is what we feel when we are looking back, remembering the past, thinking about our own sins, and resentment is what we feel when we're looking back, remembering the sins of others against us, and because we're all sinners living in a world surrounded by other sinners, then I know already that you are acquainted, uncomfortably familiar with both of those things. Regret for your own sins and resentment toward others for their sins against you, the problem with both Regret and resentment is that it's impossible to go backwards in time. You, you can't go back and undo any of it, although that's the thought that tends to come to our mind. If I could just undo it, if I could just redo it. But what if there was a remedy better than going back and undoing it? What if it turns out that everything you regret doing And everything that you resent others for doing to you. What if it turns out that in the end, all of those things actually serve by God's grace to magnify God's mercy to you and to maximize your joy in God forever? I think that sounds too good to be true. But that's exactly what God reveals in Romans eleven twenty-five 25 through 36. And so I want to invite you, if you're physically able to stand as I read from God's word, out of our deep, deep love and regard for God who speaks to us and the words he speaks. Romans eleven twenty-five 25 through 36. This is the word of the Lord. Lest you be wise in your own sight... For your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. Father, as, as we say again and again, we, we simply would not know these things unless you had spoken to us and revealed them. And, and we just can't get over your kindness that you would communicate yourself to us, that you would clue us in, that you would pull back the veil and, and reveal realities to us, about ourselves, about the world we live in, about what you are doing in all of it, and we just know because you speak these things, then it it really must be your kind intention to win the faith and the allegiance of your people, and so I pray that you would do that and cause us, oh God, by the work of your Spirit, cause us to marvel at your mercy this morning, and to glorify you forever. Amen. You may be seated. As Logan mentioned last week, Romans chapter 11 is a heavily debated passage, and it has generated all kinds of interpretations, perspectives, positions, particularly surrounding the question of the nation of Israel and the end of the world. The phrase at the center of that debate is found here in this section in verse 26, the phrase, all Israel will be saved. And so the debate is about what that means and when that's going to happen. Some say that refers to spiritual Israel, as Paul said back at the beginning of Romans 9, not all Israel is Israel. Others say, no, that this is ethnic Israel, the nation of Israel. Some say this refers to the salvation of Jews that just happens throughout all of history, and others say, no, this is talking about a future ingathering of an entire generation of Jews at or near the end of the world. Some would even say after the return of Jesus. When he comes back, then that's when this happens. And while my own view of the future, what we call eschatology, is optimistic, and I do believe that all the nations of the earth are going to be discipled and brought to faith in Jesus, just like Jesus commissioned his church to do. I'm convinced that what Paul's talking about here in Romans 11 was an event in his future, but not in our future. His future, but our past. Just consider these time markers in the text. In verse 5, Paul talks about a remnant at the present time. That's pretty clear. There is a remnant at the present time. And he doesn't seem to be talking about the jealousy when he's, that's the theme throughout this whole passage, The Jews are going to be jealous and that's going to cause them to turn. He doesn't seem to be talking about the jealousy of a generation of Jews in the distant future since he says in verses 13 through 14, I magnify my ministry in order to somehow make my fellow Jews, his compatriots and his generation, to make them jealous and to save some of them. Paul seems to have in mind the salvation of Jews in his generation when he says in verse 23, even they, that, that is the Jews who have fallen, even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. And, and perhaps most clearly regarding time, I think in our text today, verse 31 says, they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. I think that's pretty clear. And Logan said it well last week. Romans 11 seems to be less concerned with the distant future of one particular generation of ethnic Israel and, and much more concerned with highlighting the way in which God saves all people. That, that, that was well said and, and helpful for us this morning. Romans 11 is about how God saves all people, Jew and Gentile. In other words, Romans 11 is not a crystal ball to see into The future, it's it's not a key to deciphering the politics of Israel and the Middle East. Romans 9 through 11, this this whole section, it's it's a big unit of thought in Romans, and we're here at the very end of it this morning. It is a theodicy. A theodicy is an answer to the problem of evil. A theodicy is an explanation of how it could be that a good and powerful God could allow evil to exist in his world. The problem of evil always boils down to this thought that, that somehow the existence of evil, some problem, some trial, some tragedy in the world, it must mean. It must mean that either God couldn't stop it because he's too weak or he wouldn't stop it because he's not good. And the specific evil problem addressed in Romans 9 and 10 and 11 is that the nation of Israel largely rejected Jesus Christ and his gospel. So what does that mean about God and his righteousness and his goodness and his faithfulness to his promises? What do we do with that? So Paul's been laying out this case to vindicate God. God's righteousness, God's goodness, God's glory. And he has argued that God is perfectly righteous in spite of the fact that Israel is in rebellion against him, God's own covenant people. And here at the end of Romans 11, we come to this closing argument. And it... It rises to a crescendo. it's, It's this like bombshell revelation at the end of the whole case that's presented, like the way a good Dateline episode is structured. Here's the bombshell it turns out that Israel's unbelief is not evidence that God is weak or unfaithful, it is just the opposite. Israel's rebellion is actually part of God's good and gracious and wise and powerful plan. At first glance, man's rebellion against God does tempt us to think God must have lost control. He must not be good. He must not be powerful. But it turns out that God so rules the world that the end result of human sin is that more people experience more of God's mercy than would have otherwise. Let me say that again. God so rules the world that the end result of human sin is that more people experience more of God's mercy than would have otherwise. And that should move you to marvel at the mercy of God. Romans 11 is not meant to spark speculations or, or to shape geopolitical policies. It's meant to fuel worship. That's where this passage goes. That's where it wants to take you. And if we come away from this text with anything other than just profound humility and awe and wonder at the glory and goodness of God, if if this text does not cause you to worship, to marvel at God's mercy toward you, then, then we've missed the point. And this passage causes us to marvel at God's mercy by causing us to behold God. That's how it always works. When you see God, when you behold his glory, there's only one response, to worship him. So specifically, here's my outline. This text reveals that God is more powerful than you ever imagined, that God is more merciful than you could have ever hoped, and God is more glorious than you can comprehend God is more powerful, more merciful, more glorious than you can comprehend. First point, God is more powerful than you can imagine. Verse 32 is Paul's final statement in the entire argument that spanned three chapters the way we have chapters divided. These are his closing words, the last thing he says before he launches into this doxology, this hymn of praise. And in this single sentence, he sums up his entire argument like this, For God has consigned... All to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. The first half of that, look at those words God has consigned all to disobedience. That indicates God's sovereign control over all things, even and including human disobedience. To consign is to imprison, to hand over. God has delivered everyone over to disobedience. And this is certainly a mystery beyond our ability to comprehend, as Paul will declare in worshipful amazement at the the very end. So we tread extremely carefully here. And we, we remind ourselves of all that Scripture reveals about God. God himself never sins. God never approves of sin. He takes no delight in sin. He burns with righteous indignation towards sin Every day, as it says in the Psalms, he opposes all sin everywhere. And yet, in his wise counsel, God has willed to create a world where human sin and disobedience is a reality. God neither sins nor causes sin, and yet sin plays a part somehow in God's sovereign purposes for humanity. Verse 25, Paul says, a partial hardening has come upon Israel. Come from where? Or better yet, from whom? Romans 11.8, as we looked at a couple weeks ago, God gave them a spirit of stupor. Eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. Romans 9.18, we saw several weeks ago. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he, that is God, he hardens whomever he wills. God's sovereignty over human sin, over disobedience, over the rejection of the Messiah that he sent is evident in this text in the statements of cause and purpose that are everywhere. And we'll get to the specifics of that purpose in just a minute. But for now, I just want you to note that Scripture says there is a purpose. There's a divine purpose at work over and above human sin. Verse 28, as regards the gospel... They, that is the Jews, are enemies for your sake, speaking to Gentiles. For your sake. Think about that for a second. Israel opposed the content of the gospel. They tried to hinder the spread of the gospel, keep it from spreading to anyone. Was their motive for the sake of the Gentiles? Were they thinking, we're doing this for the good of the Gentiles? No, not at all. That was not their purpose. That was not their motive in it. They were enemies of the gospel. And yet Paul can say, for your sake, to your benefit, for your good, Because that was the very thing that God used to cause the gospel to spread to the Gentile word. Israel's rejection of the gospel was the means God sovereignly used to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. Verse 30 says the same thing, just slightly differently. You, Gentiles, were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience. Because of. That's a causal statement. Their disobedience caused something. To the glory of God, namely that the gospel came to you Gentiles. How how did you receive mercy? Because of their disobedience, which most immediately means they rejected the gospel, and so the gospel was preached to the Gentiles. But if you go all the way back to the crucifixion of the Savior who died for your sins, how was your salvation accomplished? Because of their disobedience. They murdered the Son of God, and yet that was the very plan of God, for your salvation. Does that make their disobedience a good thing? Not even close. Disobedience is always wicked. It's always subject to God's judgment and it's always under the sovereign control of God who accomplishes his righteous purposes through human wickedness. Look also at the purpose statement in verse 31. They, that is the Jews, have now been disobedient In order that, they also may now receive mercy. In order that, that, that's a purpose statement. But whose purpose is Paul talking about? Clearly not Israel's. They're not thinking, here's why we will disobey. To receive more mercy from God. Not at all. He's talking about God's purpose for their disobedience. They have now been disobedient in order that, Even though they reject it, he intends to show them mercy. What this proves is that the existence of evil is not evidence that God is powerless. It's evidence that God is more powerful than you thought. When people look at the problem of evil and they conclude God must not be powerful and strong, otherwise he would do something about it, they haven't thought big enough They've thought through all the ways they could comprehend it and their comprehension just doesn't even come close to what God is actually doing. To overcome evil, it just picture two teams on the field, the stronger, faster team wins, right? That's one kind of power. But here, Paul's saying God overcomes evil not just because he's bigger and stronger, but he's actually running all of it so that everything his enemies do to oppose him is actually turned back against them, and God uses that to their defeat and his victory. That's just a different level of power than we can even comprehend. That's what God has done, and that's what he will continue to do. That's who he is. If there was ever a time when it looked like God was out of control, it would have been that moment when the Son of God hung on the cross, and was murdered by the enemies of God. And yet, that's where we see most clearly that God's enemies merely serve to fulfill God's own purpose, to give His Son for the salvation of the world. And not only is God more powerful than you can imagine, it turns out that He is more merciful than you could ever hope what what was god's purpose in hardening israel and delivering all to disobedience look again at verse 32 for god has consigned all to disobedience that so that in order that he may have mercy on all god is not sovereign in some fatalistic impersonal way like just a big force with no mind no purpose no intention no thought no he's sovereign as God, which means he's sovereign in wisdom, he's sovereign in goodness, he's sovereign according to all of his character. Everything that he does, all of his purposes are always consistent with the totality of his character. And This passage is saturated with God's purpose to show mercy to sinners. Verse 25, God's purpose in hardening Israel was to bring in the fullness of the Gentiles. It's a merciful purpose. God's purpose in showing mercy to the Gentiles is to save all Israel. Verses 26 through 27, Paul mentions the work of the Deliverer, which is to banish ungodliness and to take away sin. That's mercy. And Then in verses 30 through 32, the word mercy is repeated four times. People receive mercy. God shows mercy. People receive mercy. God is merciful toward them. God has consigned all to disobedience in order that he may have mercy on all. So consider this, what is so great about mercy that God would permit human sin and misery in order to reveal more of it? I think that's an important question. What is so great about mercy that God would permit human sin and misery in order to show more mercy? Some people try to answer the problem of evil and explain that by appealing to free will. Sin exists because God made humans free to choose. And and it's true. God made us morally responsible creatures with the ability to choose and to act accordingly. But humans never exist independent from God. Human beings are not autonomous. We're not completely self-determining creatures. So, So as an explanation for evil, free will essentially says that a world in which we are free is better than a world in which God restrains sin. So freedom, your freedom is the greatest good. God wanted that more than anything, so he's willing to plunge the world into misery so that you could be free. That, that would mean freedom is God's greatest gift to humanity, a gift worth handing the world over to sin for. However, that, that just doesn't hold up. For one thing, we will have freedom in heaven, right? We're not going to turn into robots when we get there. We're going to be free, and God is going to restrain sin forever. So presumably, he could have done that from the beginning, right? Couldn't he have made us not robots and also kept us from sinning? Could have done that the first time. For another thing, Scripture consistently points to the mercy of God and not the self-determining will of man as the greatest thing God could ever give. Nowhere does Scripture highlight your freedom as the best thing God could give you Everywhere, Scripture is pointing to the glory of the grace of God as the greatest gift He could ever give you, the greatest pleasure you could ever experience. But here's the thing. and Greg preached on this several weeks ago in Romans 9. Paul, like a bookend argument, ends where he started. Only fallen creatures can experience mercy and forgiveness. Only fallen creatures. Creatures can experience mercy and forgiveness. So of all the possible worlds, a fallen and redeemed world, fallen and redeemed, only that kind of world produces the greatest possible joy for God's people. Greater joy than a world that never knew sin and thus could never know redemption. You follow that? Without disobedience, there would be no mercy, and to receive God's mercy, that is the sweetest joy. I think J.R.R. Tolkien, the author of The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, coined the perfect word for this. He invented the word eucatastrophe. The Greek prefix eu- you, it means good. Catastrophe means a sudden turn. A catastrophe is usually a sudden turn that's tragic. A you catastrophe, a good catastrophe, is a sudden turn. Well, let me just give you Tolkien's definition in his own words. A you catastrophe, the sudden happy turn in a story which pierces you with a joy that brings tears. The sudden happy turn in a story which pierces you with a joy that brings tears. And according to Tolkien, the happiest possible turn requires, it requires the very real existence of tragedy because unless devastating sorrow and loss is a real possibility, the joy of sudden deliverance would be impossible. If the threat was just imaginary, then the deliverance is not real. But if the threat of loss is real, then that joy is unlike any other kind of Joy, and that's why Tolkien says it pierces you with a joy that brings tears. He says it's because joy and sorrow are so closely connected. Joy and sorrow tied together. Is there any joy so sweet as the joy of having all your fears relieved, all your sorrows overcome? Is there any joy like being lost and then found? Any relief that comes close to that? To be blind and then see. To be fallen and then redeemed. To be dead and made alive. That is eucatastrophe. And God is the God of eucatastrophe. Sudden, unexpected, unforeseen, undeserved turns that pierce you with joy. That moves you to tears. God wields human disobedience to bring about the best possible world. One in which God shows more mercy to more people Than in any other possible world. That is his purpose. He's not stingy with his grace. He's not trying to save as few as possible. Listen to verses 30 through 32 again. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy for God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. According to God's wise and gracious purpose, the only way for anyone to be right with God is to be a recipient of mercy. That's it. Both Jews and Gentiles disobedient so that, and this is God's purpose, not theirs, right? This is never your motive in sinning. This is God's purpose. Disobedient so that, Both Jews and Gentiles could experience God's mercy. So Paul's saying, it's not mercy for the Gentiles and merit for the Jews. It's not grace to those outsider pagans and rewards for the insider Jews. He's saying, it's mercy. Mercy to the disobedient all the way around. Which means there won't be two classes of people in heaven. Those who got in, Because they just didn't have any regrets, no mistakes, no sin, nothing shameful in their past. And so they're in and happy. And then some who just, you know, God cut them some slack. No, the only people in heaven will be forgiven ones. Ones who are wicked and rebellious and disobedient. That's every one of us. The only people in heaven will be those who committed shameful, perverted deeds who thought disgusting thoughts and cheated and lied and stole, people who were enslaved to their sinful passions and slandered and gossiped and blasphemed and received mercy after all of that. The only people in heaven will be sinners who have received God's mercy. That's why the Son of God had to die. Paul quotes Isaiah in verses 26 through 27 here, as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion he will banish ungodliness from Jacob. Because there's ungodliness in Jacob. They need a savior. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Because they were unfaithful, but God is faithful. Jesus, the deliverer, came for the ungodly and for the sinner. Not to undo the past, but to redeem you from your past. And so we see that God is more merciful than we could ever even dare to hope. He delivered all to disobedience that he might mercifully, mercifully deliver all from disobedience. And this is the thought that brings us to the soaring heights of joy and wonder in verses 33 through 36, where we see that God is more glorious than you will ever comprehend. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom And knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. In infinite goodness, God purposed to show mercy to as many as possible. And in infinite wisdom, God planned how to do that. And in infinite power, God accomplished that and is accomplishing that and will accomplish that in human history. God has put his glory on display. In doing this, God has displayed the fullness of his character, all of his attributes for us to behold and enjoy and worship and marvel at all his wisdom, his knowledge, his riches, his power, his judgments, his ways, his righteousness, his wrath, his mercy. And the only fitting response is just to marvel. The exclamations at the start of this hymn of praise are meant to induce speechless wonder. How deep. Oh, the depth How unsearchable are the judgments of God? How inscrutable are his ways? Those aren't questions. They're not asking you to respond. Let me count how deep. Let me come up with an answer. Let me try to measure and quantify. There's no answer to that. Those are exclamations that invite you to simply contemplate how incomprehensible God's ways are. There's no need for answers. Just Affirmation, you just join your amen to that. Yes, how deep, how great, how unsearchable. We're finite beings. We can't possibly wrap our finite minds, our finite understanding around God's plans and his purposes. You try, you just hurt your brain. Like how could God do that? How does he orchestrate a billion contingencies so that he's not sinning, but people are sinning, but his purposes are accomplished and not theirs. And their sinning just leads to the defeat of their sin and more of his mercy. And I don't get it. And Paul just says, you, you don't have to. You just have to say, whoa. Unsearchable. Inscrutable. You can't trace it out. When you get that, then you just live your life differently with this greater awareness. I can't always see what God's up to, but the fact that I don't see it doesn't undermine my confidence that he is working in all things for my good. Just live with that reality daily when you're looking at your life thinking it's a mess. It's all falling apart. This is not going according to my plans. There's no way that God is good in all of this. Just remind yourself his ways are inscrutable. His judgments are unsearchable. And from those exclamations, the hymn turns to these rhetorical questions, which have the same purpose. What's the point? Why do rhetorical questions have such a rhetorical effect, such a dramatic effect? Because there's no answer. You're not supposed to answer. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? The answer, of course, is no one. No one has known his mind. No one has counseled him or given him advice that he has followed. No one has ever given any service to God that put God in his debt, ever. And rhetorical questions just drive that home in this personal way. It's it's like saying, Raise your hand if you think you know the mind of the Lord. Raise your hand and come forward if you think you have some advice God should follow. Raise your hand if you think you provide some service God is in need of. And the silence in response is just deafening. No one steps forward. Which is why no one can have a problem with evil in the world. To reject God because you object to all the evil in the world, you would have to answer in the affirmative to all those questions. Yes, I know better than God. Yes, let me counsel him on what he should be doing. Yes, let me take control for a while. He can pay me back later. Nobody can answer him like that. And so nobody can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? There's only one thing to say. Verse 36. From him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. And when Paul says that all things are from God and through God and to God, your first reaction might be like, Many people, you, you tend to think of created things like, wow, yeah, the, the sun and the moon and the galaxies and the stars from God and through God and to God. Wow. And the birds and the beasts and the, the seasons, springtime and harvest, it's all from God and through God and to God. And, and that's true. That's absolutely true. All things were created by God and they're sustained by God. They have their existence through Him and they are for His glory. Why did God create all things? He created all things for His glory. That That's true. But in the immediate context, the molecules and the galaxies and creation is not in view. Which I think makes this even more incredible. In this context, all things would include what? Israel's rejection of Jesus. The murder of the Son of God. Their opposition to hostility toward the gospel. All things would include... Human disobedience, hardness of heart, as well as the salvation, the redemption, the mercy that God reveals. Those are the all things that this context is talking about. All things. He is ruling history. He is accomplishing his purpose, which is to show more mercy to more people than you can even wrap your little mind around. He's going to do that. All these things are from Him and through Him and to Him. To Him be the glory forever. So what does that do about your regret and your resentment that you have in life? It means that God is sovereignly governing all things to bring about your greatest possible experience of His mercy and His grace. It means that neither your sin nor the sins that others have committed against you could ever put you beyond God's mercy. In fact, sin only becomes the backdrop against which the mercy of God is displayed. Sometimes people get this idea, it's just crazy because it's so obviously wrong, but we, we get this idea that our sin disqualifies us from being a Christian. Like it's... Easier to think God could save other people, but not me, because I know my own sins, and so people are haunted by regret. If only I could go back and undo that, redo that, do that differently. Nothing you have done could disqualify you from being a recipient of God's mercy. In fact, all of your sin and disobedience makes you a perfect candidate for mercy. Unless you have sinned, you can't receive mercy. So no wonder in chapter 6, seems like a long time ago we were there, some people who heard This gospel of grace in Jesus Christ, their response was, whoa, wait a minute. Does that mean we should sin more, that grace may abound? I mean, there's a reason people think that way, right? And the answer, of course, is no, sin is always wrong. And the good that God accomplishes through sin doesn't justify or excuse your sinning. But it means the answer isn't for you to go back to the past and undo it. The answer going forward now is to trust and obey God. So that you avoid sin, the remedy for your past sin, everything that you regret, everything you wish you could undo, the remedy for that is Jesus, the deliverer who died to take away your guilt and your shame. And so what do you do? You confess your sins to God without making any excuses. You turn, you forsake your sinful ways and you trust in Jesus. And as Isaiah 55, 7 promises, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will, he will, he will abundantly pardon. And the same applies to those of you who harbor some bitterness and resentment toward others for their sins against you. What what if you were so convinced that the sins of others cannot thwart God's purpose and his plan, but actually ultimately in the end simply serve to advance God's plan, then you could trust that no matter what others have done to you, their evil intent to harm you is not the ultimate final word. Without approving of the wrongs done to you, I want to be clear, God does not sweep anything under the rug. God will judge all sin. Without approving of the wrongs done to you, God is always at work in all things for you, for your good. If you doubt that, then you'll remain enslaved to your own bitterness toward others. But when you trust that, then you can experience this freedom. God is writing your story. With that freedom comes then the ability to forgive others. You confess your bitterness to God and enjoy His freedom, His forgiveness of your sin. People who know this gospel, this Savior, this God, we we should be the most optimistic people in the world. Because we know that the enemies of righteousness cannot ever succeed in thwarting the advance of the gospel. That applies looking back to all your regrets and your resentments. It applies looking forward. If you're worried about the condition of the world and oh no, evil people are plotting evil things, (laughs) don't you fear. Things are going according to plan. He is the God of you catastrophe and the tears of joy and the songs of praise that will resound to his name forever. Nothing can compare to that. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we worship you. We marvel at you. and We trust you. It's our joy to add our amen to these words that your spirit inspired through the Apostle Paul thousands of years ago. It's our privilege to join our voices in this song of praise that your people have sung down through the ages and will sing generations after us all things, all things from you, through you, to you. Oh, God, there is none like you. We want you to have all of the glory in the world, starting with having all of our allegiance and all of our affection here in this place right now. In Jesus' name, amen.